Can one lawsuit bring down a Fortune 500 company? Sure it can, if it's not just one lawsuit, but thousands combined into one. Today on Parse for Billion, we talk about where the litigation over PFAS is heading and whether the defendants will be able to survive this lawsuit deluge. Hello and welcome back once again to Parts Per Billion, the environmental podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, also known as PFAS, have affected countless lives, both the people who were exposed to them and the people who made them. These so-called forever chemicals are some of the most durable and water-resistant substances known to man. Unfortunately, as their nickname suggests, they also almost never break down in the environment, instead accumulating in the soil, in water, and in the human body. We here at Bloomberg Law have been covering PFAS for several years now, but a new story from our colleague Andrew Wallander indicates that this legal saga may have moved into a new chapter. Andrew looked at data on thousands of PFAS lawsuits, and he found that the scope of the plaintiff's targets is widening, not just to the early PFAS adopter DuPont, but also to other companies, including the chemicals and manufacturing giant 3M. The playing field for all of these suits is something called multi-district litigation, or MDL, which is definitely not to be confused with a class action suit, very, very different. I asked Andrew to explain to me how this is affecting the trajectory of all these lawsuits, and also just exactly what multi-district litigation actually is. Yeah, so it's a bit of a complicated topic, but essentially the goal is uh, when you've got a number of lawsuits on the same topic, uh, it's a process meant to standardize, simplify it a bit. So if you've got uh, two or more lawsuits on the same topic filed in at least two different federal courts, uh, one of the parties in the lawsuits uh, can move to centralize all those proceedings um, in sort of one docket overseen by one judge uh, in a single district. Uh, and that's meant to quicken up all the, the, the pretrial motions, the hearings, the discovery, um, and make it so that you don't have a bunch of different decisions being made by different courts on the same topic. Uh, and so, you know, unlike class action lawsuits where everyone has the same injury with multi-district litigation cases, it's often, you know, the same thing that's causing an injury, but the injury to parties can be different and it can vary. Yeah, that's one thing that really uh, confused me initially when I was covering this is that we're not talking about a class action here, which is lots of people suing one party over the same thing. This is lots of people suing a similar party over different things, but they're all related and, you know, all the suits are combined just for efficiency's sake. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, it makes sense. Uh, or at least it sounds like it makes sense, but there are some people who criticize this multi-district litigation, or MDL as it's called. Can you talk a little bit about that, about some of the criticisms of it? Yeah, so some of the people I talked to, and especially those on the defendant side, brought up concerns that with multi-district litigation, it encourages plaintiff's attorneys to file, uh, and it attracts more lawsuits uh, than otherwise would be filed. Uh, and, and, and their criticisms were that, were that, you know, it's easy for these people to come in and join this multi-district litigation when the discovery is already underway. A lot of the heavy uh, lifting, the heavy legwork is, is, is taking place already. Um, and so their criticism was that these people kind of come in and 
um, join the lawsuit and try to get part of a settlement um, before one comes out. Whether that's true or not to be seen, but that's one of the criticisms. So it kind of lowers the bar for filing a suit. And, you know, when you lower the bar, I guess you get some suits that maybe aren't with merit. I, right. And that's, that's the argument is that, that, you know, there's not a high bar to bring some of these cases in and you can directly file into an MDL as well. Um, of course, as the case goes on, uh, some of those cases will be weeded out and, and, and dismissed or transferred out of the MDL. So let's talk about the uh, the MDL for PFAS, or should I say the latest one, because we've already had two. Here's the third. Uh, it's very confusing, as PFAS always is. Can you sort through um, how this one is different from the other two? Yeah, absolutely. So the other two, we had one in the mid to late 2000s. Um, That one was only a few dozen cases, not very big. It focused on Teflon. Uh, And so that was primarily against DuPont. Uh, In the uh, 2010s, around 2013 or so, uh, and and for the years after that, there was a a number of lawsuits filed over uh, pollution from a plant in, in West Virginia, um, also against DuPont. And that was one specific site? That was one specific site, exactly. Um, and so now a, a different company, Camorra, owns that plant. Um, but you're, you're probably familiar with it. Um, there are a number of movies that came about from from that case, uh, Dark Waters, The Devil Indeed. We Know. Star- Dark Waters starring Mark Ruffalo. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, and by the way, uh, the uh, man that Mark Ruffalo played, uh, in that movie, Rob Balot mm-hmm. was a former guest on this very podcast. Oh, fantastic. Just have to brag a little bit. Um, but uh, I get the sense that, you know, for the third uh, MDL, which is the one that we're talking about here, it's not just one site. It's not just one location. This is way bigger in scope. Exactly, exactly. So so this multi-district litigation case is focused on a type of firefighting foam called aqueous foam-forming foam, or AFFF. AFFF, yep. yeah. Uh, and so it is a much bigger case because it involves a number of companies. It's not just uh, DuPont that's being sued. It's it's 3M, ChemGuard, all these different uh, other companies. Uh, anyone that made PFAS that went into products or that um, produced uh, the, the secondary products, actually made the foam uh, or sold the foam, they're being sued as well. So there's a lot more parties involved. Uh, the scope is much wider. This is, of course, nationwide because... Uh, for years, uh, the, the military has required AFFF to be used at military bases and uh, airports as well. They are they follow mil spec, uh, and so they have to have uh, AFFF at, at airports. Mil spec. That's uh, you know the the uh, specifications that you know stuff that the military uses has to meet. Uh, to, exactly. To put it sort of inartfully. Um, and, you know, we should talk about, you know, this PFAS is, of course, not good for the environment, not good for human health. But, you know, it's worth repeating that this is some of the only stuff that can put out fires on Air Force bases, on airports in a safe way. Right? I mean, this is this is this is vital stuff that that can't be substituted. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, and that that's why this has been used so widely and been required by the military is is. Uh, this type of foam is used for uh, liquid fuel fires that are fueled by by oil, gas, and those fires get so hot that water is ineffective. It just evaporates before it can have an effect. Um, and so this, this foam also, it will cover a fire, it will douse it, um, suffocate it essentially uh, with, with this foam, and 
it's because of PFAS and, and the way that it's so um, durable. It doesn't it doesn't break down easily. Uh, that it's able to have this effect. Uh, but so yeah, so there's there's been work underway to figure out other other ways to fight these fires, not using PFAS. And there's some substitutes that are being looked at now. But uh, for the moment, uh, PFAS has still been widely used. So for your story, you did some, you know, real data diving and you looked into the thousands and I mean thousands of PFAS lawsuits that have been filed thus far. And it sounds like one of the conclusions that you found is that, you know, initially almost all of the suits were against DuPont and most of them were related to that site that we talked about in West Virginia. Not the case anymore. It sounds like 3M is now a major player and is getting sued a lot more. Tell me about this data, how you collected it, and what it means. Yeah, so it, this this story came about with just the simple question of looking at liability with PFAS. Who bears the most liability right now for, for contamination? And so we decided to get into that by looking at lawsuits. And so we went and we used our Bloomberg Law platform uh, to, to do a few targeted searches to find cases that uh, mentioned PFAS. Uh, that we're dealing with with PFAS, and then also looking at those three MDLs we mentioned, um, those multi-district litigation cases. Yeah. Uh, there's a list of you know lawsuits that are member cases that are attached to that, so we're able to grab those as well. Um, put all the cases we found into a database, uh, standardized some of the names, uh, deduplicated some of the entries, uh, and, and then analyzed you know the the trends over time and 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 what was happening with these lawsuits. Uh, and yeah, like you mentioned, it was. Uh, very much so uh, DuPont being sued early on. Uh, they were sort of the, the go-to target for PFAS litigation. And uh, now with this, this new wave that we're seeing of, of uh, litigation over PFAS, uh, there's a lot more parody in who's being sued. It's not just DuPont. Um, but uh, yeah, 3M is, is certainly one of the most talked about defendants. Um, a number of the people I spoke to um, shared that uh, they, they did it all. They made all the different um, components of, of they made PFAS, uh, but then they also made the finished products that, that PFAS went into and sold it. And um, so they, they have a lot of liability. And uh, also one of the interesting things I learned uh, reporting on this too is one of the allegations in the lawsuit uh, or in the lawsuits that are being filed is that uh, 3M made a specific type of PFAS, PFOS, and they were the only ones who made that uh, type of, of PFAS. And so the argument uh, in the in the lawsuit is is that uh, you you can pinpoint where 3M products specifically have polluted certain sites, um, and you can say, oh, if that that PFOS that PFOS is there, you know it was uh, 3M. Who it's was like involved. a it's like a chemical sing- signature. Exactly, like a chemical signature. Um, 3M, for their part, they they said that uh, that's not true. That others also made this type of PFAS, but uh, that's that's one of the things that's been looked at in the lawsuit. Well, let's talk. Let's get a little bit more into the defense here. Um, you know, it sounds like one of the main defenses that the defendants are putting forth is, like you said, mil spec. Mm-hmm. That essentially they made these products for the military, for the government, and there's something called the government contractor defense, which states that more or less, if you make a product for the government or for the military, 
you are immune from most product liability lawsuits resulting from that product. Do I have that right? And if so, is that a defense that could win the day for for 3M, DuPont, and these other companies? Yeah, yeah. So the the, the companies are are putting out this this government contractor defense, and and that's that's a defense that was recognized in the the late 80s by the Supreme Court uh, in in a, in a separate case. And uh, basically, like you said, it 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 says that. Uh, Companies can't be held to to states' product liability laws if they made uh, products provided them to the military and they were to military specification. Uh, and so, uh, there's basically three prongs to that defense that have to be met for it to be used. And one being that the the government specified uh, what a product needs to look like. Sounds like that applies here. It sounds, yep, yep. And then um, second, the the product actually has to conform to those specifications that a company's making. Sure, okay. And then third, and this is kind of the the, the big one that's really being looked at um, now it, it, with, with PFAS, is that uh, the companies had to warn the government about any dangers with a product uh, that they knew of that the government did not know of. Ooh, yeah, so that, that's, that, that's, that's what a lot of the... Uh, pre-trial stuff is focusing on right now is is looking at did the companies warn the government uh, about all the dangers uh, with PFOS before this mil spec AFFF uh, came about uh, and uh, you know some of the reporting that's been done previously uh, has shown that uh, DuPont 3M had internal studies going back to the to the 60s showing that they knew that, that PFOS was uh, harmful to, to human health and long-lasting in the environment. But I guess, you know, even if they knew, did they tell the government, did they tell the military that, that this could be a problem? Exactly, yeah. Ooh, that's and, fascinating. Yep, so there's lots of discovery going on right now. There's millions of documents being produced in this, this multi-district litigation case. Uh, lots to sort through. And in the coming months, um, perhaps over the summer, we should get a response uh, from from the court uh, showing if they're able to use this government contractor defense. Um, and even if even if they are, uh, you know, it's still there's a lot of sites where it doesn't involve military bases or right, PFAS right. is still like still civilian there. airports and things like exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, finally, where are we heading here? And the reason why I ask is because, you know, DuPont still exists uh, as a going concern. But it is not the same company that it was just 10 years ago. I mean, it has been merged and spun off. And, you know, not all of that is because of these PFAS liabilities, but it did play a role. Are we going to see that with every one of these companies that is a defendant in these cases where they're going to this is actually going to, like, cause them to not exist as we know them today, including 3M, which is uh, a pretty big company? Yes. I mean, that, that that's to be seen. Um I'm not sure if we'll see, you know, any any major foldings or anything like that um, anytime soon. Uh, but it, it definitely is uh, a major concern for for some companies, some more than others. Uh, and, and and there was a yeah a quote in, in a story that I included from a, a proceeding uh, in the MDL back in 2019, where the judge overseeing all these cases essentially told the companies you're facing an existential threat. If one or two motions don't go your way, this could be very bad for your business. There could be a lot of liability on the line. So to be seen, it's a, it's a big question. Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. And of, of course, you know, 3M's a massive company. And, and so 
I don't I don't think we'll see, be seeing them fold anytime soon. But um, it definitely is a major concern for them. It's it's taking up a lot of their annual report, listing all these liabilities, uh, and and it's something that they're very they're very focused on. But uh, to be seen, we'll see. To be seen. Well, if and when we do see that, we'll have Andrew Wallander back on the podcast. Uh, for now, that was Andrew Wallander speaking with me about PFAS. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great. And that's it for today's episode of Parts Per Billion. If you want more environmental news, check us out on Twitter. We use a pretty easy-to-remember handle. It's at environment, just that, at environment, nothing else. Today's episode of Parts Per Billion was produced by myself, David Schultz. Parts Per Billion was created by Jessica Coombs and Rachel Daigle and is edited by Zach Sherwood and Chuck McCutcheon. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.